It has been really nice uh, just to be with you and part of your community for the past few weeks. Um, and it's a beautiful day today, so I feel like, man, we should all go outside and play, right? Um, but if you are just joining us, my name is Eugene, and I've been here uh, somewhat of a guest uh, for the past several weeks. And this is week three in our series. I uh, hope you all had a good week. Um, I'd like to invite us actually to stand as I read our scripture uh, for us this morning. It's from Colossians chapter 1. Uh, we're going to look at two brief passages, verse 25 to 28, and also chapter 2, verses 2 to 3. And the Apostle Paul is talking about the church here as he starts this, uh, this passage. He says, I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. And then skipping down to Colossians 2. My goal is that they, or you, may be encouraged in heart and united in love. So that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Amen. You may be seated. So over the past two weeks, uh, we've been in a series on the book of Colossians, which is not really a book, it's really a letter, right? And this uh, series is called Christ is Everything. And the basic idea is that it's all about Jesus. And when I say all, I mean all. Right? Colossians 1.16 says, the Apostle Paul tells us, for in him... All things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And the good news is that this cosmic view of Christ is that God is neither distant nor absent. God is always near and present in every moment, every place, and in everyone. So we live in a Christ-soaked world. Christ is everything. And it's so simple and yet so easy to forget. We can get preoccupied with human traditions. We can get weighed down by legalism. We can make following Jesus into a list of do's and don'ts. But last week we learned how the, these forms and traditions are merely containers that hold our encounters with Christ. So containers like worship, prayer, and Bible study can be helpful and even necessary, but they're not to be mistaken for the contents. Right? They're not to be mistaken for Christ himself. In fact, it can be easy to just go through the motions of religious devotion and still miss the entire point, which is to actually be with Jesus. 
And so if you've been tracking with us over the past two weeks, you probably, hopefully, get it by now. Christ is... It's all about Jesus. And today, I'd like to talk about what should be the next logical question on everyone's mind. Who's Jesus? What is Jesus like? How do we know him? There are so many conflicting views and claims about Jesus, right? There's buddy Jesus. There's swole Jesus. Soft and sensitive Jesus. Of course, there's white Anglo-Saxon Protestant Jesus, or Catholic Jesus. There's awkwardly handsome Jesus, and probably more historically accurate, but not so handsome Jesus. Right? How do we know what Jesus was really like? Well, one obvious way we should be able to get to know Jesus is by looking at the people who claim to follow him, right? Christians. And for some of you, that may have worked out great. Maybe you were blessed with people in your life who faithfully and humbly pointed you to the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ. But for others of you, maybe not so much. The church is supposed to be the body of Christ, the very presence of God in the world. Yet, I'm sure many of us have had experiences of Christians or churches being judgmental or legalistic, or controlling, or argumentative, or even abusive. To be honest, nowadays when I meet someone and they say that they're a Christian, I have almost no idea what that means. Are you a love mercy, do justice, walk humbly with the Lord kind of Christian? Or are you a white nationalist, control and dominate people with power, spew hate kind of Christian? I grieve that today when many people look at the church, they don't see honesty and humility or the radical love of Jesus. They see arrogance and greed, abuses of power, sexism, racism, and exclusion, all dressed up in religious clothing. And it's no wonder why so many see Christianity as nothing more than hypocritical nonsense. Like the televangelist who asked his followers for donations so he can purchase a $54 million private jet. Or the fact that according to a Pew study several years ago, Evangelical Christians were the least likely group of Americans to believe that the U.S. should accept refugees. Whatever happened to WWJD, right? What would Jesus do? Apparently, it seems many Christians today might not have a very good idea. Gandhi was famously quoted saying, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. So if Christians don't look enough like Christ for people to recognize him, then we have a problem, right? Maybe we are the problem. Maybe we've lost sight of Jesus. Who is Jesus? How do we know the Jesus we know is really him. Maybe we're missing something. 
And these questions may have been similar to some of the ones that these new believers in Colossae might have been wondering uh, when Paul wrote this letter to them nearly 2,000 years ago. And the church in Colossae was young and vulnerable in their faith, and these false teachers were infiltrating their community with impressive-sounding teachings about complicated religious rules and traditions. And these teachers were claiming to possess superior knowledge and spiritual power. And one of the marks of these teachings was a preoccupation with secret spiritual mysteries. Because everyone loves a secret, right? They claim to know Christ in a special way that would have made the Colossians question whether they knew Christ at all. And remember, these teachers were taking advantage of the Colossians by promising them special knowledge and wisdom and power and insight into the mysteries of God. And so how does Paul respond to this problem? He responds by giving them knowledge, wisdom, power, and insight into the mystery of God. And so starting in verse 125, Paul says his job is to present to them the word of God in its fullness. And just to be clear, when Paul says the word of God, he isn't talking about the Bible. The Bible wouldn't be put together for another few hundred years. He's not talking about a book or written word. He's more likely talking about the living word. The logos of God made flesh. He's talking about Jesus. And remember, when Paul says in its fullness, he means in its wholeness and completion, lacking in nothing. And so you can imagine the Colossians' ears perking up as they're listening to this letter being read to them. You know, maybe these teachers were right. Maybe we were missing something. Finally. We get to hear the word of God in its fullness. And Paul says his mission is to present to them this mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed or being revealed to the Lord's people. And so you can imagine the Colossians getting excited. What is this mystery kept hidden for ages and generations? And Paul continues, God has chosen to make known the glorious riches of this mystery, which is, what is it? What is this mystery? Okay, wait for it. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And, there's no and. That's it. Christ in you. The word of God in its fullness, the mystery kept hidden for ages and generations and now revealed the glorious riches of this mystery, the hope of glory, is Christ already in you. Imagine how disappointed the Colossians might have felt. Like, Paul, we thought you were going to give us something new and insightful, something we haven't heard before. We thought you were going to reveal these secret mysteries of God. But all you did was tell us the answer is Jesus. Maybe you might feel a little let down too. 
But Paul continues, he is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. Paul sums up the entire message of the gospel, the good news, in a single pronoun. He is the one we proclaim. We proclaim him. All wisdom, full maturity is in Jesus. Paul saying, don't fall for these false teachers telling you that you're inferior or lacking in something. You already have everything you need in Christ. In chapter 2, he tells them his goal, that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, not divided and competing with one another, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely, there it is again, Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul is saying the secret to the Christian life is that there is no secret. It's like being in Sunday school when you're a kid, right? The answer is always Jesus. And it's still the same today. The mystery of God is not hidden. The mystery of God is fully revealed in Jesus Christ. He is the image of of the invisible God, the fullness of God in bodily form. And so the fullness of God is not beliefs, not doctrines or rules or traditions or regulations or even spiritual practices or experiences. All of these things are valuable, but they're not Jesus. The mystery revealed is that the fullness of God is the person of Jesus Christ. And if God is a person... Not a set of propositions. It means the key to knowing God isn't about having the right information or being right. The key to knowing God is relationship. And this changes everything. I'm pretty convinced that one of the reasons why so many tend to get God wrong is that we don't like mystery. We would rather shrink the mystery of God down to something we can understand. We try to squeeze an infinite God into our finite minds. We try to limit a limitless God. Why? I think it's because we want to be in control. If we put God in a box, we can master God. Or make God into something that we can possess for ourselves. If we can reduce God to a mere subject to be studied, then we can use that knowledge to gain power. Which is exactly what these false teachers in Colossians were doing. But the prophet Isaiah reminds us, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts than your thoughts. No one can say, I've solved the mystery, right? I figured out God. Because we don't get to master God or possess him. But we can love God 
and surrender to God in awe and in wonder. I want you to kind of rest your brain for a second, okay, and and get ready for this statement. Whatever you think of God, right, whatever idea of God you have in your mind, think about everything you know, everything that you've learned, this kind of image that you have of who God is. You got it? You're wrong. Whatever idea of God you have in your mind cannot actually be God by virtue of God being infinite and unfathomable. You might have a part, but not the whole. Thomas Merton wrote, so much depends on our idea of God, yet no idea of him, however pure and perfect, is adequate to express him as he really is. Our idea of God tells us more about ourselves than about him. Whenever we reduce God to something we can grasp with our minds, we are bound to get wrong, get God more wrong than right. And as a result, our religion starts to get skewed. And it starts to look less and less like Jesus and often more and more like ourselves. Anne Lamott wrote, you can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. The true and living God is a mystery beyond our comprehension and, of course, because God is a person. My wife's name is Alice, and uh, when we go out on dates, we struggle with the same age-old question every couple has struggled with since the beginning of time. What do you want to eat? And I hope you won't hold this against her, but my wife is not the biggest fan of Mexican food. She doesn't really like it that much, right? Which is a big problem because I love Mexican food. I usually just have to eat it by myself. Like a good taco is like comfort food for me, right? And one time, we were, trying to fig- we were going out and trying to figure out what to eat. When out of nowhere, Alice goes, how about Mexican food? And I said, because you don't like Mexican food. And inside, I'm thinking, we've been married over 20 years, and I don't know you at all. And my wife is a mystery beyond comprehension. And, and of course she is, because she is a person. And so are you. And how much more so when we're talking about the God of the universe? Alice is not a static collection of data. She cannot be reduced to a, like a volume of books. She doesn't fit in a box, and neither does the living God. She is complex and dynamic and sometimes unpredictable and even contradictory. And there is no way I can know everything about her. She is a mystery, yet I can and I do know her in a way that surpasses mere head knowledge. Right? I know her personally and relationally, and it's the same way we can know God. 
We don't get to know or understand everything there is to know about God. But we do get to know God intimately. Because God already knows and loves us perfectly and completely. That night, we got Mexican food, and she ended up not liking it. And Paul describes these false teachers in Colossians as people who go into great detail about what they've seen. They're puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. Right? That's kind of an ironic way of saying it. I'm sure you may have encountered people like this before. Right? It can be intimidating when someone has a lot of knowledge or experience about things we don't know much about. But Paul's point, and it's the same point that Jesus makes repeatedly throughout the Gospels, is that it's very possible to know a lot about God and yet not know God at all. And it's possible to not know much about the Bible or theology and yet know God deeply and intimately. Some of you may know I have three kids. Uh, they're aged 20, 18, and 16. And I like to think that we are very close. Uh, we love to spend time together. and We have a great relationship. Uh, but if I were to give them a test about the facts of my life, my guess is that they'd probably fail. They don't know who my best friend in elementary school was or what middle school I went to. They know almost nothing about all the things I did in high school, which is probably a good thing. But their lack of knowledge about me would have nothing to do with the fact that I know them and love them deeply. Or that my children know me in a way that goes beyond mere words or information because we have an actual relationship, a bond that can never be broken or taken away. And even if you may not always be aware of it, that is the same kind of relationship you already have with God in Christ. You are God's child. You don't have to know everything about God or get everything right or do everything right in order to have Christ in you. You just have to know that you already do. It requires faith, not effort. And so how do we know Jesus in the midst of all the confusing messages about who Jesus is and what Jesus is like, i like to offer us three suggestions. And the first might sound a little bit contradictory, but knowing Jesus requires some information. Some of us simply need to learn more about him. Even though just knowing information about Jesus isn't the point or the end goal, it's still a good place to start. It would be hard for us to be friends if you didn't know at least some information about me, right? I am an Asian-American dad who likes Mexican food, right? We can start there. Likewise, we can start by getting to know about Jesus through the scriptures and through the four gospels in particular, you know, the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And if you're ever in doubt 
because of all the confusing messages out there, if you're ever in doubt about what God is actually like, look at Jesus. Because Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And although the written word tends to be a somewhat limited medium, we can still contemplate on Jesus by reading and hearing about the things that he did and said and who he spent time with. Right? How else would we know the answer to the question, what would Jesus do, unless we actually learn what Jesus did? Second, knowing Jesus requires humility. If the first step is to grow in our knowledge about Christ, then the second step is to recognize that there's always more to what we don't know than what we know. Adam Grant, he's an organizational psychologist, says, if knowledge is power, knowing what we don't know is wisdom. So be wise. It's possible that we might not know Jesus as well as we think we do. And this is not meant to discourage us. So it's meant to encourage us to keep seeking and learning it means we keep allowing God to blow our minds. The spiritual journey isn't about staying in one place. It's about moving and exploring. It's about evolving and expanding to include a bigger and bigger God. Knowing that Christ is the mystery of God and Christ is inexhaustible. Richard Rohr says, a mystery isn't something we can't understand. It's something that we can understand endlessly. Think about it. If a scientist were to think they already know all there is to know about a subject, what would they do? They'd stop looking. They'd stop learning and, and wondering and investigating. But a good scientist knows that there's no end to all that they could learn. So they keep learning, they keep studying and making new discoveries. And so humility isn't the limit or the end of what we know. It's actually the path to endless knowing and discovery. And finally, knowing Jesus requires being with him. If we want to know Jesus, the best thing we can do is to actually spend time with him. If the mystery of God is a person, then the way to know God is the same way we know anyone else, by being with them. There are no shortcuts or secret hacks. The key to knowing God is simply being with Jesus. And so here's the truth that revolutionized my spiritual life, and perhaps it can do the same for yours in a way, this is the same message, the same good news Paul was trying to convey to the Colossians when they were feeling insecure about their faith, wondering if they knew the real Jesus, wondering if God was really with them or not. If that's you today, I want you to hear this. You can never not be in the presence of God. Let me say that again. You can never not be in the presence of God. 
Because the cosmic Christ that's, that's portrayed here in Colossians is already and always all around you, with you, and in you. Christ is always present and available and accessible. Christ is always present. The question is, are you? We're usually not. We're usually busy and distracted and preoccupied. We're usually not present because we're either dwelling in the past or we're anticipating or anxious about the future. I've learned that it takes intentionality and some practice to be in the present moment and to give God or anyone else our full attention. If you want to be present with someone, you usually have to take away the things that draw our attention away. Right? The way we do it is usually by subtraction, not addition. In other words, we don't need to do more to be with God. We usually need to do less to shed all the things that get in the way. You don't need to do anything to be with God. There's nothing to do because God is already present with us. What we often need is to slow down and quiet ourselves enough so that we can be present too. Mr. Rogers, who you might know was a Presbyterian minister, said, I'm very concerned that our society is much more concerned with information than wonder in noise rather than silence. How do we encourage reflection? And you can hear it in his Mr. Rogers voice. Oh my, this is a noisy world. Perhaps what we need is more wonder and silence and reflection. Instead of constant noise and stimulation, God is already with us, but sometimes we need stillness and slowness in order for us to notice. And so right now, I'm going to try to lead us in a prayerful meditation. Okay, so I hope you'll bear with me. If it feels a little awkward or unfamiliar, that's okay. Just, you know, trust the moment. I want to invite you to make yourself comfortable in your seat. Maybe put both feet grounded on the floor. And you can close your eyes. It's just, I just find it's easier. I get distracted by different things. And I want to invite us to take a slow, deep breath, okay, together. And then would you pray this prayer with me? I'm going to say some words and please uh, repeat after me. I am here. Repeat after me. <laughs> Ready? I am here. You are here. We are here together. And make this a prayer to God. I am here. Go ahead and do that. 
We'll get it. We'll get it. You are here. We are here together. Become aware that Christ is here with you now in this present moment. Become aware that his presence is love, sustaining you and embracing you. And if you become distracted, don't worry about it. Just gently come back to the present moment by praying those words. I am here. You are here. We are here together. There's nothing to think about. There's nothing to even say or do or feel. Just be with Jesus. And let's pray that prayer one more time, repeating after me. I am here. You are here. We are here together. Amen. You can open your eyes if you like. Um, this week, would you be willing to try this on your own? It may be a little bit different, but... You know, give it a try. Find some quiet space where you won't be bothered. Jesus said when we pray, we should go into our room and close the door. It sounds like pretty good advice, right? So turn off your phone, and I want to encourage you to practice this for five minutes. So it's not a big ask. And try doing this for a few days in a row and see if it might help you become more aware of God throughout your day or throughout your week. To pray, I am here, you are here, we are here together. Amen.